So I was driving in the evening to an apartment complex. I was thinking all the way there. I tried to remind myself that I'd already met these people and that it was going to be fine. But I was nervous because I knew I was stepping into a place that would be uncomfortable for me. This Iraqi family had come to the United States. I had met them through a friend. I was driving to spend the evening with them in their apartment, in conversation, listening, getting to know each other, and having dinner together. I got out of my car, and I was walking up, about to make contact with the door. You know, knock. And the door opened, and it began. It wasn't long that the conversation grew more comfortable, but I have to admit, I was uncomfortable. I have friends like this, and you're going to get to meet one of them this evening. My special guest on the Love First podcast this evening is Tyler White, friend and author of his new book, Contact, and he's the reason I was in that apartment this evening. that evening, and I look forward to you meeting him this evening. If this is your first time at the Love First podcast, our purpose is to catalyze courageous conversations to help revolutionize the way we love. If you are returning, you know that we're in a series on friendship, the gospel, and politics. We're trying to understand the impact and the power of Jesus' statement in John 15, 15, where he said, I call you friends. So let's begin our conversation. Thank you for joining us this evening. So Tyler, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I'm so thankful to see you in person and for our mutual friends to get to see each other again and get to enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. At the end of your book, you summarize it in one sentence, which means you did a great job writing, but your summary is fall in love with people. And I don't know, if, if I was trying to sell a book, I'm not sure I would say to people, hey, here's another book on how to fall in love with people. But that's not actually what your book does. Your book teaches people how to do it. Effective Steps leads us through a very simple but powerful process that can help us bridge differences through friendship. So thank you for joining us. Now, what I'd like to do is just ask you to tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, tell us about yourself and tell us about how you got into writing the book, Contact. Hey, Don. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the Love First podcast. Um, you know that phrase, fall in love with people. I had a friend in college, one of my best friends in college and still to this day, he used to say that phrase all the time, and I don't even think he knows where he got it from, but it's always resonated with me, and it was the appropriate one-sentence summary to put in the conclusion of the book, um, which um, we'll get into, I guess, a little bit more later. But the formation of Contact, um, the short story of that is writing a book was never in my plan. Um, you know, I felt like God had directed me in such a way with this idea of contact um, that a book ended up being the best way to disseminate that idea. Um, so a few years ago, I moved from Mississippi, where I grew up in a small town called Columbus, to Atlanta. And with that was a huge cultural shift. Mm. Um, Atlanta is a very multicultural city. The city of Columbus, where I grew up in Mississippi, was not very multicultural. And so when I moved to Atlanta, I started working with a nonprofit mm. helping resettle refugees. And I was going to grad school at the same time um, online. And so this was during the last election cycle in 2016 mm. when I first moved to Atlanta. And so by nature, um, when I would go back to Mississippi, I would, I would get a lot of questions about, you know, what are you, what are you doing in Atlanta? What type of work are you doing? And 
I will tell them that I'm doing refugee ministry. I'm helping uh, refugees from all around the world um, restart their lives in this smaller neighborhood in Atlanta called Clarkson. And some of the, the comments and the, the questions and, and the facial expressions that I would get with um, me describing the work that I did um, would catch me off guard a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, um, are you scared? Um, are you worried about them, you know, being terrorists? And I'm thinking in my mind, like, that's never, that's never even crossed my mind when I'm in contact and in proximity with uh, these refugees. And so with that, I began to observe that the people who were asking these questions and making those comments with, with good intentions um, had never actually met a refugee yeah. and even deeper usually their their friend circles and groups were very similar to them as far as race and background um and so on the other side of that um i noticed that people who had um, a little more diverse friend group or background um never never really asked those those types of questions so that was kind of a spark into what i was doing for um some of my research in grad school um which i didn't fully get to get to research uh, as completely as I wanted to at the time, which was kind of the fruition of this book. But I was just asking the question, you know, what is, what is this observation? What does it mean that um, how, how you view people is dependent upon the people that you have interacted with and spent time with and have been in proximity, intentional proximity with. And so that was, kind of the fruition, the initial uh, fruition of writing the book Contact and just gathering notes and research and ideas over a couple of years. And I ended up just writing it all down and, and putting it into a book that uh, thankfully got got published. And so it was all very uh, transformational for, for me moving to a new city and and then kind of doing the research behind behind Contact and what it means to intentionally interact with people and and how that affects the way that we view people who are made in the image of God. Yes. Now let's talk about that for a few moments because you've already kind of snuck us in the back door of your book by articulating the difference between kind of casual relationships and intentional relationships. And one of the things that you mentioned right out of the gate is this idea of contact moments like you discuss your growing up years where it wasn't that you weren't casually around people but you were not intentionally developing a relationship so i want to take a moment and set some context so you mention uh, your upbringing uh in columbus mississippi and a wonderful uh, parents. You mentioned that in the book. And then you moved to Atlanta. So there's an educational context. You're in Clarkston, which a lot of people call the most diverse square mile in America, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of the right. Ellis Island of the South. Uh, and I've spent time out there as well. So there's no doubt that that's an accurate uh, description. You also mentioned your faith. Obviously, you've talked about the image of God and the impact of faith and the fact that primarily you're writing about America, even though faith and Christ transcends that and that Jesus is transcultural. But you're speaking to a context and out of a context that I think most of us in one way or another could find ourselves somewhere in proximity of your context. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up? You mentioned being involved in athletics where you were around people who were different than you. But looking back, you can see you didn't make the most of that contact moment. Yeah. Like I said, I grew up in a fairly monocultural environment. And the the city that I grew up in was... Um, it wasn't multicultural. It may have been bicultural in the sense that there were white people and black people. And, and I went to school with a lot of white people and played sports with them and considered them my, my friends. I don't know if I would have considered them my close friends at the time. 
Um, because, you know, I got along with them on the basketball court, but we weren't really hanging out, going to the movies like I did with my white friends. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, there was always, I wouldn't say there was this us versus them mentality um, because we, you know, me along with my, my white friends growing up, we would have never considered ourselves uh, racist mm -hmm. um, or any other terms that would go with that. But there was no intentional desire on my part mm -hmm. to understand why their their lives were, were different than mine and why why I didn't, you know, really spend time with them and hang out with them like I did my white friends. Yes. And so the, um, you know, the environment that I grew up in wasn't really conducive to to all of us being together and intentionally knowing each other. Um, we lived in different neighborhoods. We went to the same school and um, there was just always, always something missing there that was, was not intentional with that. And so obviously now if, if I would go back, I would be much more in, intentional about um, just knowing, knowing their experience so I can learn, learn and listen to them better. Yes. So now you step in through faith and education and your experience and you begin to put all three of those together and something begins to emerge in your life. Uh, some of the ways you describe it in the book is you describe it things like, you know, God is responsible for diversity. And that's actually one of perhaps his greatest gifts. Uh, you talk about the fact in the book that that somehow intentional contacts to really honestly want to get to know someone else and create a place where we can get to know actually is, is healing, that there's <laughs> this real benefit to it. And so maybe part of what you're helping us understand is casual contact may have a certain level of value, right? Mm -hmm. But intentional contact takes on a very different expression, a very different value. So I'd like to get into that a little bit. You mentioned that you believe this is a pivotal moment in history. I'd like for you to expand on that a little. Why do you believe that this book, published in 2020, why do you believe this is a pivotal moment in history? And why do you believe that your book speaks to this pivotal moment? My hope for this book is that readers will apply its concepts across all aspects of their lives, including politics. And obviously it being an election year, politics is what we hear about more than anything. Um, we can't, we can't really escape it. And so obviously with that, it's one of the most divisive topics in the country. And I think that it takes really spending time with people and trying to understand them to ease the political chaos. And it's easy to think about people that disagree with us as unimportant or unintelligent, but just about everyone has deeply rooted reasons mm -hmm. on why they believe what they believe. And it takes us getting to know them to find that out. Yes. And a lot of the time those rooted beliefs are, are because of the way someone grew up or the impact um, of some event in, in their life that has been different than what our experiences have been growing up. So in that process of getting to know people, we're able to see them more completely and worthy um, because everyone's create, created by God. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a unique experience and background that um, influences the way that they, they think the way that they do now. And it's, it's not like people, you know, people usually just don't come up with, um, with things that they can't reason that, that they believe, I would say, um, I would say it's, it's really, it really takes diving into their stories and, and their background. And in the process, we learn so much from, from that. Um, and with the question, you know, and, and politics as part of that, um, it, it all plays into understanding why someone might vote a certain way or think about um, an issue in a certain way that we don't. 
Yes. Now, something that I love that you do in the book is you, in kind of a rhythmic fashion, you lay out research. And I want to say for our listeners who are getting to know you this evening and who are making a decision as to whether or not they think this book is going to be in their library. And I'm telling you right now, I want you to have this book in your library, okay? But what you do is you rhythmically lay out research in the book. And one of the things you do is for people who might think, well, you know, either I'm not a person of faith or I'm kind of leaning toward faith. I've got questions about faith or I'm all in, right? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm all in on the faith, but I still want to know, is there any like research behind this? I mean, is this just Tyler's idea or, or did Tyler's high school youth group, you know, give him a great idea for the future? Or is there some research that says, hey, contact the way you're talking about it. Intentional engagement that doesn't diminish difference, but actually explores difference. Is there any research that says this works, that this helps, that this, that this makes a positive difference in our society? And you talk about the research of Gordon Alport and his 1954 kind of a seminal research on the nature of prejudice and leading into the theory of contact, contact theory. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of that and how you found your way into contact theory? There is research, so I'm glad that you brought that up, Don. And I think that's a really important aspect of this discussion and the topic of, of contact as a whole. And uh, to supplement that, I would just like to say that I think God has given us social science and research to supplement and, uh, and oftentimes catch us up to um, what God has already been teaching us. And so that's kind of the way I describe it in the book. And it's important. And so with, with Gordon Allport, um, as I mentioned in, in a previous answer, um, some of the observations I made when I moved to Atlanta um, and I was going to grad school at the same time, I, I wanted to research that. And so in my process of um, researching and trying to answer that question, I came across Gordon Allport, Allport's work, The Nature of Prejudice. And Allport lays out some conditions to, to contact um, and those conditions um, research later research has shown that sometimes they they're helpful and sometimes, sometimes they're not. Um, but if you look at a, um, um, a meta analysis of contact theory and the research that's been done on it, um, all the studies say that overall contact, which just means spending intentional time with people who are different than you, um, decreases your prejudice. And that's usually kind of the way that it's worded and decreases your generalizations that you might make about people that are different from you. And, um, you know, sometimes we hear the word prejudice and it, it, there's a lot of antipathy associated with that term, but it really just means making assumptions about someone that, that aren't true because you, because you don't know them well enough, yeah. um, more or less. Yeah. And so with that, there's the research that goes with that just says that when we spend time with groups or individuals who are different from ourselves, we learn more about them and our prejudice is reduced. So there's more than just anecdotal evidence yeah. um, that's laid out about contact and contact theory. Um, I, I kind of put it together in my, in my book in an anecdotal way, but I use Allport's research and, and some other researchers um, later studies to, to kind of build a foundation that, that leads up to just explaining how our intentional contact with people um, helps us overall love, love people better because we understand them better. Yes. And, it, and it, it, it impacted me specifically in the pandemic, right? Because it's one thing to start the pan, pandemic awareness, right? Back in March, and be like, okay, well, what will work? What will work? What will work? And finally, you realize, 
we're not going to solve this without like some real research. You know, <laughs> this isn't take two aspirin and call me in the morning, right? I mean, you really got to put some research behind this. And I love the fact that you acknowledge that, that you just said, hey, you know what? If we could have easily solved this, it would have been done. Mm -hmm. So let's invest in the research. Another thing that I thought was really uh, impactful is you rooted this work in the life of Jesus and the example of Jesus. You have this powerful line. You said, Jesus didn't need to gain perspective. He was perspective. And so you begin to walk us through how Jesus connects with people, the way that Jesus used contact to change people's lives. You encourage us to look back on the journey of our own life and look at how God may be working and how God opened up contact opportunities because you want us to explore, kind of explore that ourselves. You've already mentioned looking back over your own personal uh, life and doing some of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I hope everybody gets to read about uh, your uh, Bible message in Mexico. I'm not going to say another word <laughs> on it, but the smile on your face will let people know that when they get to page 24, they're going to have fun. Okay, but I'm not going to do that. What I would like for you to do is you bring up a very powerful example from media that's rooted in a true story, Remember the Titans. And you lean into that story of these uh, two coaches. And they, in 1971, T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And you lean into this story with contact. Could you tell us a little bit about why that story stood out to you as one of the real pillars in, in explaining what contact looks like and how it helps? Definitely. Remember the Titans, you know, such a, an inspirational movie for, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever met a person who has disliked the movie. So <laughs> I, it, it, in my research, I, I think I found a, a paper from a grad student that um, lays it out similarly as, as I do. And I, and I cited a lot of that in, in the book, but kind of wrote it in my own narrative in the way to, to help us understand um, just a very practical and real life example um, and a real life example that had a, a huge impact that, that was mostly true. Um, obviously there's some creative license in the movie, but uh, busing and, and segregation and the integration of schools um, was all real. And, and the context of remember the Titans is, is true. And the way that the players in the movie come together across the narrative of the movie is, is very inspirational. And, and in the book I lay out, I kind of walk through a lot of the movie and lay out what does contact look like from beginning to the end. Mm. So in the beginning, you know, you have white and black players and white and black coaches um, who are authority figures um, for, for the whole movie. Um, and the role that the coaches play in it is, is pivotal as well. And, and so, you know, we have the scene in the beginning where um, the players are going to camp at, um, in, in Gettysburg and they're on different buses. They segregate. Um, I guess they, they do it intentionally. White players on one bus, white players on another bus. And Coach Boone in the movie it's like this is not this is not a good good start, and so he goes on the buses and he swaps everybody around, and, and then he says, um, "The person you're sitting beside now is is going to be your roommate for the remainder of, of camp, right?" And so that kind of sparks the uh, some of the animosity that that takes place in in the first part of the film, and and then through camp we see them, uh, you know, bickering with each other and getting into some fights. Um, cause there's a lot of racial animosity. None of these players are used to being around someone of a different color. And so, um, so in the film, there's this iconic scene that I, that I write about in the book as well. And it gives me chills every time I, I watch it. 
Um, even even when I reread this 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 section of the book, you know the the players are. It's a late night. They're probably doing three days by now. I think in the movie. Yeah. Um, so they're doing um, practice late at night, and um, one of the white players who is a, a lineman is not blocking um, responsibly um, for uh, for one of the black players, and so this this white player gets reprimanded by his other white teammate who's like you know no we're here to play football and we all have this common goal of winning mm-hmm. um so you need to do you need to do your part and so one of the one of the black players makes a really good play the white player gary uh really encur- encourages him and and kind of gives him a, a playful shove and says left side and then uh, it's kind of encouraging Julius, the black player, to uh, to do it as well because they're they're kind of feeling it. They're getting into the practice. They're making progress. And then after some hesita- hesitation, Julius finally says, "Strong side." And then they go back and forth, left side, strong side. And um, it's just, it's a it's a really great scene in the movie. And and that was probably the watershed moment, yes. watershed scene. In, in the film where the players really uh, came together to, to play football. And then beyond that, they, some of them become really, really good friends. Yes. And, and, you know, we, we all know the rest of the movie after, after that. And so you see contact and, and these common goals and support from their coaches um, and this equal status that they have while, while they're at this camp, at least, um, all that kind of leads to um, this cohesiveness that um, that really shapes who they are as players and as people. So let's talk through that a little bit, because I love the the wordplay that you did there, where literal physical contact, because it's football, right? right? But what you basically articulated was that led to cognitive contact, emotional contact, cultural contact. And in the midst of all of that, something you lay out in the book is that all of this is redemptive, that there is a door that opens uh, for a redemption. To start suggesting that the divisions, these historical divisions, these cultural divisions aren't really serving us well. They're not helping us with common goals, common health, common benefit. Right. And so actually through the contact, through these experiences, then relationships form that lead to uh, redemptive moments, beneficial moments, joyful moments, common goal. Now, something else I want to point out that I think is, is really important that you do in the book is you talk about the fact that none of this is actually except the part that God plays, none of this is perfect, that these relationships, just like you shared in the movie or from the movie, these relationships don't start off perfect. And, you know, the first conversation, you know, it might be a single, it might not be a home run, right? Right. But the intentionality is what gets it moving. Then you step toward another value in the life of Jesus and that's humility. Why do you spend so much time on humility and articulating the humility of Jesus and the essentiality of humility in this context? Why was that so important to you? So one of the uh, conditions that Allport lays out um, to have successful contact, as, as uh, he might say in his research, um, is, is equal status. Mm. And there's a lot that that could be a whole book by itself discussing, discussing that. But I really just try to shortly summarize it in the book by saying, you know, there is a, there is a scenario in which um, we have to be humble mm-hmm. and, and have humility to pursue equal status among each other for the common goal of, of contact, successful contact. And so we see this ultimately in the example of Jesus, who, you know, the son of God 
God himself came down to earth and um, took on the form of, of a man um, and was char- characteristically humble in doing that. Um, and so in, so in a way, when we humble ourselves and we follow that same character of Jesus, um, it helps us better relate to the, the people around us. Yes. Um, and can I lean into something that you yes. said a couple of times, and I want to tease it out a little bit for our listeners, those that are mm-hmm. engaging with us here. You mention equality in the situation where we recognize that societally, depending on where someone lives in the world, equality may be may just seem like you know, almost an insult that we would even suggest that that's possible. Like how tone deaf can you guys be to suggest that equality would somehow, you know, what, you know, wave a magic wand, right? But you're not saying that. You're, you're like, when you were talking about, remember the Titans, they started finding equality in the pursuit of a common goal, in the expression of their athletic gifts. And you emphasize several times this idea of finding ways to go to move toward equality in the situation you're in. And I think that's very important because like in the first century when the uh, Bible was being written and so on, the Roman government's interest in equality was uh, minimal, right? (laughs) You're not going to find a lot of uh, uh, empathy among the Roman elite to suggest that, hey, everyone ought to be equal, right? But Mm -hmm. we do see that in the teachings of Scripture. We do see that pressed into in the teachings to churches, right? So I think that that's really, uh, I think that's extremely important. One of the things that you help us think through are influences that are hurting contact influences that are making it hard for people to successfully bridge these gaps. Uh, You've already mentioned uh, political polarization, right? But you also mention kind of uh, the the, the blessing and the curse of social media, right? And you talk a little bit about uh, the fact that uh, social media can give us a platform for wonderful expression of ideas and creativity, however, right? It has also become a platform for great division. How would you encourage people to make the most of social media? And what are some bits of advice you might give that you've included in the book to say, hey, here's some Christian responsibility in regard to social media? Yes. Social media is is tricky because it's number one, it's hard to read emotions on social media. Mm. It's supposed to be easier with emojis and, and um, you know, gifts and, and those things. But, um, but people, people don't often use those. And um, a lot of our conversations on social media end up just spiraling out of control and, um, you know, don't even have anything to do with uh, the original topic that, that was being discussed on social media and it hurts, it hurts to see people you know and love, and I'm sure everyone can relate, that, relate to this in a, in a similar way. It hurts to see people that you know and love just engaging in such divisive yeah. conversation on social media. Um, it almost feels like it's a trap. Mm. And, um, you know, some people are more outspoken than others. But, but at some point, we've probably all fell in this this trap whether a little bit or or a lot and so you know i'm reminded of just how christians should engage the world and take the topic of social media how should christians christians engage social media um which seems to be um and research would probably show this which seems to be that it's it's one of the the issues that leads to a lot of our polarization Mm. politically and and in other areas so how should Christians engage this? Well, I think one of the one of the most influential um, messages that that I've heard um, in the past was describing how Christianity is 
is the only religion that's sustained by news. So when we think about news and, and media and social media, um, Christians should take news and media very seriously um, mm. because it, it kind of drives who we are because we, we have this news that we carry around with us, this good news that we share with other people that leads to transformational um, impact in people's lives. Um, but we're not having any type of transformational impact uh, on social media for the most part. Um, mm. And so just asking the question, you know, what, what am I doing that's Christ-like um, on social media individually? And, and what can I do collectively to help to make it better? Um, and how can I encourage my fellow Christians to, to better engage um, news and media? Because it's such a central, just the idea of news is such a central part to, to who we are as Christians. Yes. And so we should take that um, you know, responsibly and in every area, including social media. Yeah. Something that you said that I thought was, was pretty powerful. You, uh, you actually, uh, challenge, challenged me and you challenged the readers that it is a Christian responsibility to do good research and to engage actively seeking to know truth and to not spread falsehood. And you also gave an extremely powerful challenge when you said, in the opposite of the book of James encouragement, you said, when we are slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry, we are actually doing injustice to those whom we, to whom we ought to be listening and I'll be honest with you, that was a real gut punch for me, is to suggest that if I'm supposed to be listening and I'm not, then I'm actually being unjust to someone, right? What I'd like for you to do is walk us through an example in the book that's kind of mind-blowing, and I want people to know a little bit about this. You bring up jazz musician... Daryl Davis, who's a person of color, and his project of actually intentionally meeting members of the KKK and engaging them around the idea, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? This was a very significant example in the book, and I'd like for you to walk us through that a little bit. This is such a, an interesting story and it's such a good example of, of what contact can look like because on the most simple level, it is a, a black man intentionally engaging and spending time with members of, of the KKK and building a friendship with them and and it results in, in them leaving the KKK. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, there may be stories of those who don't, but I think he, he said in interviews, he, he has 12 or 13 robes that he keeps from these, these former members of the KKK. And it's, you know, it's inspiring in the sense that it shows that there's hope because mm -hmm. it's easy to think that, you know, a member of the KKK would be so, uh, sold out to an ideology of white supremacy that they couldn't, they couldn't turn around. Um, and it's also important to note the, the um, desire that Daryl Davis has and the work that he has put in to, um, to spend time and, and befriend, you know, a lot of these former and current KKK members, um, you know, as a white person, I don't know what, what, what that kind of work would even be like um, to, to go about. But as I said, on the simplest level, you know, it's, it's a black man spending time with someone who, who um, could be perceived as so far gone um, down the road of, of white supremacy that, um, that there's no turning back. But the hope, the way that he describes the story is, is encouraging and inspiring. And, and it shows that, spending time with people can be this, um, 
this kind of trans relational thing that, that works with different kinds of people that, you know, when they get to know me as a person, um, when they get to know someone else as a person who's just different from them, it leads to an understanding that you, you never would have thought, thought that you would have. Um, And you mentioned earlier, some people thinking about your work with refugees and, and wondering, you know, did you feel danger? Did, you know, did you worry that, you know, you were, you know, having a terrorist in your car, driving them to, you know, different appointments and so on. And one of the things I think that uh, the story of Daryl Davis brings up is he had his own circumstances, his own music career, how he meets people is unique to him. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when we hear a story that seems like made for a movie, right? And, and it's almost just unimaginable, then it kind of, in a sense, we can disengage a little bit, but you don't let us disengage in the book. You push back at us and ask us, how are we going to approach the relationships in our life, in our circle, in our experience that may not look exactly like Daryl Davis's work, right? We may not end up with a KKK robe that represents such a unique change. What we might just end up with is an improved relationship with a neighbor, a member of our church, someone in our family. Tyler, we're coming up on the election. It's in November. (laughs) You know, we're a few weeks away and I've already had friends tell me, Oh, I don't, however it turns out, I don't want to go to Thanksgiving. I've already had friends tell me that. I don't want to, you know, I hope I, you know, they they don't want COVID to last, but they want the pandemic impact to last so that they don't have to go to Christmas once the election happens. You know, all kidding aside, there is so much anxiety around the divisiveness and the polarization and what you call us to is to follow Jesus around. Uh, As you move us through the book, you take us into examples where Jesus is engaging people, whether it's the story of Nicodemus or the teaching around the Good Samaritan, and you're leading us into circumstances, even the conversion of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, and you're using these as examples. And one of the things you say is, if we follow Jesus around, we're going to be involved in intentional contact. And it is going to be life-changing, perhaps not just for the person with whom we're talking, but for us. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about what working with um, a people that are resettling in America, refugee work, how did that change you? What are, what are a couple of things that you can reflect on or a particular story that you could say that one just really changed me? Every refugee that I worked with, every, everyone has their own story. Um, and, and they're all so unique. And some, some are more dramatic than others, of course. But working with refugees in a way when you're spending significant amount of time with, with someone from a different country. Um, and especially if it's a family, you know, there's so many, so many things you have to do with them in the beginning that you're, you're spending a good amount of time with them. So in a weird roundabout way, um, and, and in a very small way, you're, you're almost a stranger yourself within, within their context because you're in, you're in their home. And so seeing the, the welcoming attitudes from, from so many refugee families that I worked with um, was just such a learning experience because it's like, uh, I'm supposed to be welcoming you um, here in the U S um, but you're, you know, yes. your hosp- hosp- uh, hospitality is, is so unique that, you know, you're, um, you're welcoming me in a way. And so, um, so like I said, there, there's so many stories of refugees and how they may have 
you know, became a refugee or, or got to the U S but, but overall it's just, a, I think just the principle of knowing that they have a story and sitting down with them and listening to that story and, um, and seeing, um, seeing how they um, just have the, the courage and the desire and the resilience to, to start over. Yeah. Cause it's really, it's really, really hard to come to the U S with pretty much nothing and start over. Um, yes. And, and seeing that is, is inspiring. Um, and, 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 and you are so much in the process. In. You put me in that situation. You did it. And I, I'm, th- I'm saying thank you publicly, by the way. Yeah. But you put me in that situation. And when I read that part of your book, that's what I remembered was I, I ended up being the stranger who was mm. welcomed in. And I was the one that was learning. I was the one that was learning hospitality. I was the one that was being changed um, in that encounter. And this kind of leads, as we kind of come around to the close of the book, one of the things that you challenge us to do in one of the sections is you give us 10 practical arenas in which to do this. And I'm not going to give them all. I want people to read the book to see it. But you talk about things like, what about volunteering? What about where you buy? What about your entertainment? What about um, the news you watch? All of those things. And you give us about 10 different arenas of life to examine and just ask, hey, in your daily life, and, and I love this, you ask this question, what if? What if we chose intentional contact in all of those arenas of daily life? So what I want to do is I want to come around to the end where you challenge us to make the most of these opportunities, not to be a bystander, but an active player. Mm -hmm. To not fear... Where will this go? What do I do if someone disagrees with me? You know, what do I do if I find myself nervous about what they uh, support or the ideas that are important to them? You challenge us to step back. Don't draw any boundaries. Don't, Don't create barriers. Learn to listen. And you have this great statement. You said, when we pay attention to difference, It's really just simply understanding. We have an opportunity to love and an opportunity to share. And in Jesus, we see the greatest, most authentic example of contact. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do now is just ask you, Tyler, what do you hope people will do as a result of reading your book? My prayer is that people will see the redemptive nature of getting to know people and, and truly learn what it means to understand people, which in turn, in turns helps us understand what it means to, to love God um, and, and to love others. And so if we take this from kind of an overarching viewpoint, um, we are um, made, made whole more like more completely with people um, when we come into contact with them. And in a similar way, um, we're reconciled to God when we come into contact with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so if we bring, bring that down, you know, Jesus is, you know, those, those two great commandments, love God and, and love people, love your neighbor. Um, this book is, is truly the essence of, of love God, love people. And so I I want readers to understand that they, they go together. Mm. Loving God means, means loving people and, and understanding them and respecting them and seeing them made in the image of God. And the other way around loving people and understanding people and respecting them and seeing, seeing them made in the image of image of God. Um, leads us to, to a more complete picture of who God is 
as as God. And so we have, you know, these two things that that go so well together. Um, and, and that's the what kind of the way that Jesus described it, that um, simply intentionally interacting with people different from us, because um, we all know that Jesus intentionally interacted with people different than him, um, just leads us into such a, a, a deep relationship with people and with God. And so that's kind of the 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 crux of of the book and what i would want people to get out of it that's awesome that is awesome and i'm thankful that you said that because of course this is an interview so i didn't know exactly what you would say but in my notes from from my reading of the book and allowing your book to impact me i heard this powerful this powerful theme god first became a friend to me. Mm-hmm. He's, he's asking me to become a friend to someone else. God first made contact with me. And yes. he's asking me to make a contact with others. Yes. And so when I think about that movement, the way you're describing it is it's cyclical. God has made a contact with us, which has impacted us. We make contact with others, which impacts us. But then their contact with us impacts our understanding of our contact with God. And this is what leads to our wholeness. Tyler, I want to thank you for this fantastic book. And I'm excited uh, to see all that God does with your work uh, now and in the future. And if people are watching live, the link to the book is going to be in the chat box. So you'll be able to just click on it and go get it. If you're not watching this live, but you're watching it in a replay, then the book is Contact by Tyler White. And uh, Tyler, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you all for joining us on the Love First podcast. We would ask you to like, subscribe, and share, and make intentional contact.